Chapter Twenty One of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Gray surprises Mr. Clavering. The coroner's jury brought in the verdict that Mr. Clavering had feared, and Lord Meldrum was held for trial. Robert was utterly astounded at the turn affairs had taken and showed more indignation over Meldrum's detention than relief at his own unexpected escape. Lady Ursula had been carried from the hall before the verdict was returned, and it devolved upon Mr. Clavering to inform her of it, Lady Pevensey having declared that her nerves were unequal to the strain, and Elsie Baring, in her joy at Robert's acquittal, taking no thought of anyone else. It seemed to Mr. Clavering that most unpleasant things fell to his lot. Lady Ursula received the news of the indictment in exactly the way he had dreaded, and when she learned that Meldrum was already being taken to the jail in Westhaven, the nearest town to Portstead, her grief became frenzied and uncontrollable. It was only by promising to visit Meldrum that night and assure him of her love, but not faith, Mr. Clavering was pained to note, that he succeeded in getting her into the carriage. Robert showed scant sympathy with his sister's grief, did not even ride in the carriage with her, but returned to the manor on foot and alone. Mr. Clavering was puzzled and considerably exasperated by his conduct. The boy was a mystery, and he certainly possessed the faculty of alienating what few friends he had. Mr. Clavering was driven to Westhaven that evening, and after a good deal of difficulty gained admission to the miserable building that did duty as a jail. His distress was so great at finding Meldrum in a wretched little unplastered room, which contained but a single barred window, that the prisoner had to turn consoler and try to make him believe that he had never been in more comfortable quarters. "'You shall not pass many more nights in this unspeakable place,' said Mr. Clavering, actually with tears in his eyes. "'I'm going to clear you in spite of yourself.' "'Dear old chap,' responded Meldrum gratefully, "'don't take it so to heart.' "'I intend,' persisted Mr. Clavering, "'to unmask the murderer who is hiding behind your misplaced generosity.' The severity came again into Meldrum's eyes, and his mouth tightened. "'Clavering, I want you to let this matter rest. I have practically admitted my guilt, and that must be an end of speculation.' "'I am going to clear you,' reiterated Mr. Clavering stubbornly, "'and I shall not depend on speculation.' Meldrum gave an exasperated smile. "'You always were confoundedly obstinate, old man, but don't. If you want to win my appreciation, mix yourself up any further in this case.' It's a bad one. I am perfectly comfortable here. I haven't a complaint against a soul. And now that you have brought me Ursula's message, I am happy, very happy. Old chap, he began earnestly, stand by her. Don't let the detectives worry her. Robert means well, but he's only a boy and weak. I will stand by her, Mr. Clavering promised, and I shall stand by you too, Meldrum. Meldrum gave his hand a strong, hearty grip. "'Dear old fellow, you are the best friend, and the most troublesome, that ever a man had.' Mr. Clavering rode soberly back to the manor, where he passed an unpleasant and wakeful night. He could not get Meldrum in his miserable cell out of his thoughts, and toward midnight he heard vague sounds of stirring through the house. In the light of what had happened on former nights, he thought it advisable to get up and investigate. But by the time he had donned dressing-gown and slippers and stepped into the corridor, there was perfect silence over the old house. Deciding that his nerves had played him false, he returned to bed. 
since the discovery of the secret passage, he had had a heavy oak wardrobe pushed in front of the entrance, so he had no fear of intruders. He slept fitfully until a little before dawn, when he was roused by further sounds of stirring, as vague and indefinite in location as the previous. Feeling sleepier then than he had felt all night, he found it easy to persuade himself that it was the servants rising early, and turning over, continued his sleep until the sun awoke him with its brightness. As was his custom, he went down into the gardens for a short stroll before breakfast. His old acquaintance, the head gardener, paused in his weeding as he approached. "'Great excitement in the village last night, sir!' "'Excitement!' echoed Mr. Clavering with interest. "'What happened, David?' "'Didn't you hear the pistol shot, sir?' "'But no, I suppose you wouldn't, being up here so far away.' "'Pistol shots!' Mr. Clavering was quite agitated. "'Was it uh, another murder?' David rose stiffly and painfully from his knees. "'That's hard to tell, sir. Nobody left to say.' "'You mean everybody concerned is dead?' gasped Mr. Clavering. "'Don't rightly know, sir,' said David laconically. "'Everybody's gone, somehow. Cottage be empty. Eh, now I think, sir, I believe tis the very one you was asking about. They calls it Wild Rose Villa.' Mr. Clavering waited to hear no more, but set out for the village with speed and resolution. It was not until he reached the lodge, and saw through the open lattice the table spread with snowy cloth and tempting dishes, that he remembered his forgotten breakfast. He almost yielded and turned back, but finally conquered the inner man, and walked briskly down the hill without daring a backward glance. Along a branch of the road, a grassy lane gay with bright hedge-flowers, he heard the soft, quick thud of a horse's hoofs, and presently a familiar chestnut mare and high, yellow-wheeled dog-cart swung into view. But instead of a pompous coachman in the Portstead livery, Lady Ursula was driving, and she was alone, without even a groom to attend her. Mr. Clavering waited until the mare came up to him, and he fancied that Lady Ursula was somewhat disconcerted at seeing him. In any case, her greeting was not over-cordial. It seemed to him that she looked more worn and weary than she had the day before. There was about her a certain tense anxiety, a restless nerve energy. But it was not to be wondered at. She must have passed a sleepless night, thinking of Meldrum awaiting trial in West Haven jail. "'You are abroad early, Lady Ursula,' Mr. Clavering remarked, trying to say something that should be impersonal and natural. But he felt stiff and ill at ease under her questioning, half-irritated gaze. Somehow this remark displeased her. He could feel her irritation was growing. "'The morning air,' she said vaguely, and the hand that held the whip tightened. "'There's nothing like the morning air for a drive.' "'But come, get in, and I will take you back to the manor. It must be breakfast time.' He thanked her, but declined her invitation, saying that he was on his way to the village to investigate David's story of a disturbance there that night. Lady Ursula's eyes held a curious light, and she snapped at the air with her whip, which caused the mare to curvet. She pulled her down sharply. "'David is getting in his dotage. If there had been any serious disturbance, we should have been informed of it.' "'You had best let me drive you back. You will miss breakfast.' Upon his declining a second time, she gave the mare a sharp cut of the whip, and she flew up to the lodge gates with a dash and a vim worthy of a certain little Shetland pony. Mr. Clavering stood staring helplessly after them. For the life of him, he had never had the courage to mention the name of Mavis Travers to Lady Ursula, although he could have had no better opportunity to do so than now. "'She must know,' 
that her brother's principal beneficiary was living in the village, and she should know that the disturbance was said to have taken place at her cottage. Then why had he not told her? He angrily asked himself. Unable to find an answer, he hastened forward again, pondering as he went why Lady Ursula, who was a notoriously late riser, should take such a very early drive, and without coachman or groom. Could she have been to Westhaven in the hope of seeing Meldrum? It was hardly likely, as she must then have started before dawn in order to be back by now. But, however it was, why had her manner toward him been so curt and irritated? Well, his stay at Portstead Manor had been on the whole very unpleasant, and he thought with regretful longing of his quiet, well-ordered chambers in Mayfair. Were it not for his unfortunate, he felt it now to be unfortunate, interest in things criminal, he might at this moment be reclining in gentlemanly ease in those decorously peaceful precincts, instead of pushing onward, hot, dusty, leg-weary, and breakfastless, toward another scene of violence. Puck's reflection upon mortals appealed to him, then, as being peculiarly apt. But the drowsy little village, as he passed along its main street, gave no hint of harrowing excitement to be found there. Quaint, placid, sweet-scented as an old-world garden, it slumbered on in the deep blue haze of the summer day. Yet when he turned down the lane where Mavis Travers lived, he saw there a quickening, an excitement, and Wild Rose Villa was the scene of the awakening. The little garden was thronged with a curious crowd of country folk of both sexes and all ages, from the white-capped old grandam to the apple-cheeked toddler, and the roses rioting there were being ruthlessly trampled underfoot. At the flower-curtained window was now no elfish child face, framed in a flying mass of red hair, no formidable Elena in the porch doorway, but in their places round-eyed, excited rustics, all talking at once. In the tiny entry hall Mr. Clavering beheld a very fat, self-important village magistrate taking copious notes. Mr. Clavering, striving to hide his own agitation under a mask of impressive dignity, made his way toward this functionary, through a group of smock-frocked haymakers, who fell away in admiring wonder before this elegant gentleman with the silk hat and silver-topped cane. But before he could address the note-taking personage, a slim, girlish figure detached itself from a circle of substantial-looking village women and came toward him. He gave a gasp of astonishment. "'I knew you would come, Mr. Clavering,' smiled Mary Gray. "'May I ask,' he began, "'how you happened?' "'You may,' she interrupted, "'but please don't. You mustn't expect me to take the time now to explain.' I want you to come out upon the porch. I have something to show you there. Motioning back the women who would have followed, she led him out upon the porch and pointed to the door, which swung wide. A little above midway in the door were three round, blackened holes, slanting downward. She indicated where one bullet was embedded in the porch and another in a post supporting it. Some dark stains upon the flooring showed that one of the bullets, at least, had done execution. A chorus of awed exclamations in rude country speech burst forth anew as Mary Gray, with the business-like coolness which always characterized her at such times, pointed out to Mr. Clavering these evidences of violence. She was bombarded with questions by the greedily eager villagers, but she broke from them impatiently, and taking Mr. Clavering by the arm, drew him into the garden. "'Let us trace the course taken by the person with the bullet wound in the leg,' she said. 
That bullet traveled too low to have hit anything but a leg or a foot. "'But Mavis and Elena, where are they?' demanded Mr. Clavering, as in his bewilderment he passively submitted to being led about by this authoritative young woman. "'Fled to parts unknown,' she shrugged. "'But which of them do you think was shot?' "'My dear Mr. Clavering,' she exclaimed with impatience, "'don't be stupid. Those shots were fired from the inside, presumably by our friend Elena, to keep out some unwelcome visitor. But come, these yokels are listening.' Mr. Clavering was beginning to have a certain respect for Mary Gray, so he forbore to rebuke her for the tone she had used toward him, and continued to follow her obediently through the riot of roses. He noticed that the pompous village magistrate, who had just issued into the garden, took off his hat to her with deference as he was about to pass through the gate, and he supposed she had given him to believe that she was one of the guests at the manor. The course taken by the wounded person was not difficult to trace. A trail of tramped-down roses, with here and there dark drops on the velvet of their petals or on the green of their leaves, led around to the back of a small creeper-covered shed. There, in a tangle of high bushes, the wounded person had evidently lain hidden. "'He must have had a confederate,' observed Mary Gray. "'Wounded as he was, he could never have gotten away alone.' Mr. Clavering glanced in at the open door of the shed. In one corner was a roughly constructed stall strewn with hay, apparently the abode of the Shetland pony. But where was the pony? Mary Gray answered his unspoken question by informing him that, when a sufficiently long time had elapsed after the pistol shots to enable the Joneses to gather courage enough to come from under the bedclothes, they had heard the unmistakable sound of Tony's hoofs dashing down the lane. "'If Mavis and Elena went away in the pony cart, they should be easy to trace.' said Mr. Clavering. "'Suppose you trace them, then,' Mary Gray responded, with her provoking little smile. "'I am quite sure that they and the pony have parted company by now, and nobody in the village can account for their whereabouts. But perhaps you could discover.' "'I think,' said Mr. Clavering, resenting her manner, "'that the man with the wounded leg had better be traced first. If he is the man I think he is, he is a desperate character.' "'What do you know about him?' she asked quickly. Mr. Clavering felt that her circumspect testimony at the inquest entitled her to a little of his confidence, and, moreover, he believed that she, too, had investigated the cottage in the woods, so he told her of the man who had accosted Mavis and Elena, but said nothing of Meldrum's connection with him. "'Do you know who this man is?' she asked, watching his face curiously. "'He calls himself Thompson,' he answered, "'and he was Lady Ursula's butler for a few days.' He thought she seemed disappointed. "'It happens he is being traced by the police,' she said quietly. "'He is wanted on more than one charge.' "'Well, you have been in the woods,' asserted Mr. Clavering, "'and you must know where this man has been hiding. The constable should be sent there with an armed posse. "'Where is the constable?' he demanded excitedly. "'Now don't agitate yourself on such a warm day, Mr. Clavering,' she admonished in an exasperatingly soothing tone. "'I sent Burton with a band of villagers to that hut in the woods.' "'Of course I knew the man wouldn't return there, "'but I thought that giving Burton something to do "'might work off his spleen against the coroner's jury "'for failing to indict Robert Sylvester.' "'Mr. Clavering stared at her in indignant wonder. "'She presumed to address him, Archibald Clavering, "'as though he were an impatient boy. "'She had sent Burton.' "'Mary Gray read aright his thoughts, "'and with her provoking little laugh handed him a card. "'Permit me to introduce myself properly, Mr. Clavering.' 
In amazement, he perused the engraving upon the bit of pasteboard. Mercedes Cuero, Private Detective End of Chapter 21